Hello, and welcome to the Vulnerability Junkies podcast. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jamie. On this podcast, we talk about the scary, vulnerable parts of our personal and professional growth, our identities as second-generation Asian Canadians, and talking about our feelings. The more you need it, the scarier it is to ask for help. What would it look like if you did it anyway? On today's episode, we discuss reaching out while freaking out, trying to navigate around the internal stone walls that deflect compliments, and the supporting cast of characters on our various learning journeys. We hope you enjoy the show. And we're recording. Hooray. We are live. We are live. Welcome back for round three. Yeah. You brave souls who decided <laughs> to stick around for this long. All right. Temp check. How are you feeling today, Jamie? Out of 10. I'm at like a seven. I'm pretty relaxed. I am feeling optimistic. Pretty mellowed out. That's where I'm at. I'm lower today. I'm on like a three to four. Oh, whoa. Out of 10. Yeah. Mostly because I haven't been sleeping very well lately. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the sleep deprivation is catching up. So, a little bit, I just need to be better about sleeping early. But emotion-wise, excited, it's weird being excited while you're at a three to a four. But that's, that's <laughs> where I'm at. I'm excited to dig into this and get a nice little boost out of it, probably. In talking before, I could feel the excitement, but I could not feel the three. So, it's interesting. That was very off from my initial read. This is the magic of temp checks. We discover rapidly that our belief in our ability to evaluate other people's state is often extremely wrong. Yeah, it's also interesting, though, that I am excited. It's just that my internal energy level also happens to be low. Right, right, right. Which is an interesting dichotomy. Yeah, interesting. Practice-wise, what you want to work on this time around. The things I want to work on this time, in part from observing myself over the last couple weeks and in part from just thinking about how last time went. I have a tendency to disclose almost everything from the head, and I want to try practicing a little more doing things from the heart and from the body. I have a tendency to not use much by way of explicitly emotional words, so I want to lean into to doing that a little more. So that's my intention. How about you? Almost exactly the same as you in terms of disclosing more about emotional content of how I'm thinking and feeling within a conversation. And we learned that from the last episode, one of the points of feedback was I personally have a very low resolution understanding of the emotion itself, Mm. which is why it makes it hard to talk about. So today I'm going to try and focus on being increasingly more aware or self-aware of what that actual emotion is, and then also trying to articulate it. And then the extra added bonus to this situation is the fact that I'm running on zero hours of sleep. Oh, yeah. This is maybe a really good segue into it. One of my old badminton coaches, one of the things that he would always say is, you're never really at 100%. There's a common thought of, oh, I'm tired today. Like, maybe we shouldn't do this. Well, actually, if you wait for your 100% days, you're maybe only ever at 100%, maybe call it a couple of days out of the month. Yeah. The vast majority of the time, you'll be less than 100%. Therefore, you actually want to seize these opportunities When you're way less than 100% to stretch yourself and see, can you still keep it up when you're in a weekend? Not weekend, but like less able state. Yeah. When you're not at full capacity. That would be interesting. Yeah, exactly. So let's see how I do. I think that learning how to show up as an authentic version of yourself when you're low energy is a whole separate skill. And in some ways requires a little bit more vulnerability and like courage because the really high energy is like, I'm the best. This is everything's great. I can just show up. Everyone's going to like me. Whereas when you're in a low state, being able to show up and being honest about it and being like, man, I am not doing great right now. It's super valuable, but also really hard. So I agree with your badminton coach that you're never really at 100%. So you might as well learn how to show up and play anyway. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So getting into today's topic. How did you want to start this off? Because today's episode is inspired by a recent personal anecdote. Yeah, indeed. Actually, kind of like a couple separate anecdotes. The lead-in was one of the things that I've been getting better at over the last year is reaching out to friends when I feel like garbage and to not necessarily be asking for advice or domain knowledge or anything like that. Just being like, I feel like garbage and I want to talk to someone. So earlier in the week, I called you and I just started rambling about the variety of garbage I was feeling, which was a lot of self-doubt and anxiety and stress 
And it had to do with a couple of different things. So the two things leading into it were, one was at a wedding I was at recently, and then one was more recent. So the wedding situation was a very confusing emotional experience for me in that all of the things that I think to most people externally would expect to be emotionally challenging ended up being okay. Did a very simple choreography for about 10 people. I managed to rally everyone to get that piece together in a 45 minute practice session and had to take control of the group for that. That went great. It was totally fine. And I had to give a speech, which I was the best man for the wedding. So I had to give a speech and I wrote the whole thing out. And I did my best to memorize as much of it as I could, but still deliver it without it being a word for word memorization. Also totally fine. The thing that ended up being really stressful for reasons I still don't understand are in the 30 minutes leading up to the speech, I was just sitting around the table with a bunch of honestly pretty close friends. And I started to feel really intense social anxiety. And the way it manifests is it usually starts with this seed of thought of like, why can't I come up with anything to say? And this very rapidly devolves into a spiral of, man, I've been working on getting better at communication. Why is this still so hard? And then the next step down the spiral is, I wonder if people can tell that I'm uncomfortable right now. And then I get super self-conscious and I get into this hypervigilant state. Now I have another state beyond that, which is I recognize I'm in this state and I need to get out of here. When this happens, I feel this really intense wave of exhaustion and it usually manifests partially as this feeling of pressure behind my eyes and the hypervigilance. I'm much more aware of where people's eyes are pointing and what their facial expressions are and my own body position. And then once I start to be hypervigilant about all those things, I just feel very uncomfortable because I feel like I am in a performance and performing very poorly, which is just not how like a helpful way to think about social interaction. So anyway, at that point, I, I pulled myself to the bathroom because I, I knew that just sitting there was not going to help my situation. In the past, I've tried to use breathing exercises to get through this or different kind of meditation techniques of focusing on different external stimulus. And it, yeah, it just, it has never worked for me. So I pulled myself out to the bathroom and then when I was in the bathroom, I'm like, okay, like I need to, I, I cannot power myself through this on my own. So I need to ask for help. Asking for help in the state is very scary. And then I tap one of my friends, Tommy, on the shoulder and said, hey, can you go outside for a second? I want to talk to you. And then on the way out walking outside, in the process of explaining this, I just felt such an intense feeling of overwhelm and I guess embarrassment that I started crying in explaining what was going on for me. And it, it's, it's very much having strong emotions about emotions. It's embarrassing to me how strong of a reaction I was having, given that the situation I was just in was probably objectively the one that had the least demands on me for the entire day. So it's really difficult to explain what exactly about that situation I find really stressful. After talking to him for a while, he was great at like coming, kind of calming me down. I eventually just asked him to start talking about other things that seems to be effective in kicking my brain out of the state and just having something else to attach itself to. And then I went back in the room and then I gave a talk in front of a hundred people and it's totally fine. So it's really jarring having this element in my life that's really unpredictable. And then from external perceptions, transforms me from one person to a different kind of person in a way that I don't have a good way of explaining why this happens. So I think that the unpredictability of it is what makes it really scary. And it really affects my ability to feel confident in myself, to feel at ease going into situations because it always feels like a dice roll. And then the, the kind of similar related thing that happened right before I called was that I had my daily Cantonese lesson and when I go into those and I'm really tired, sometimes my brain just feels like it's running at 20% capacity. And when I'm forgetting really basic vocabulary and something that I've spent hundreds of hours studying, it's super frustrating and similarly gives me the same sense of self-doubt. So anyway, the common theme between these things is these are each things I have been consistently working on. It's super frustrating and a little embarrassing having put so much energy into these things and then still occasionally faltering in really basic situations and not being able to explain why or there not being any clear thing I can do to resolve it. Yeah, that, and that was like the inciting story that, that we started talking about it. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Even now, I think going over it again, it's definitely feeling a lot of emotions, both from you and from myself in response to those emotions as you share. <laughs> The most visceral one is wishing that I could have been there for you yeah. while you're going through it. It is really heartwarming though, that I was in there, but several other close friends were there yeah. to catch you as you trust fall into that. That brings me a lot of warmth and yeah. a lot of joy. And I'm also inspired, impressed and proud in a way 
that you mm. have such an awareness of what I might characterize as like social anxiety, panic attack that kind of hits you sometimes. Yeah. It makes me feel optimistic that even though right now it's not fully solved, but it feels like there's a lot of groundwork there for you to be able to understand and that you're conscious enough about it that, you know, these triggers work of like have Tommy talk to you about some other things. Yeah. And that was able to calm you down and you were able to go then deliver your best man speech. Yeah. Which on the one hand, it seems super scary that every conversation, every social interaction seems like a dice roll. Yeah. But it's also cool in, in a way where you have repeatedly been able to reproduce the calming down state of it as well. Even in what you might consider a high pressure situation, be giving a best man speech. There's a lot of emotional weight there beyond just the fact that you're giving a speech. So that part was cool too. Yeah. And yeah. The two themes that I pulled from those stories for the topic of today's conversation is the inciting incident of why you ended up feeling so terrible was this first thought of, I thought that I'm better than this. How is this a struggle? And then you beat yourself up. Yeah. And then that spirals, right? And then it sounds like a similar thought occurred with the Cantonese lesson. With yeah. Also, hey, I've spent so many hours on this now. How am I still here? Yeah, totally. Yeah, definitely. First of all, if you had been there, I definitely would have also like, you would have been one of the people on the top of the list to reach out to, assuming you were not embroiled in amazing conversation with seven people, because that's just like a difficult thing to pull people from. But, but yeah, there's a reason I, I called you to talk about this was that I knew that you would listen and uh, be able to support like that. After that call with you, that was like the energy inflection point for me in the week where I went into that call being like, oh my God, panic. I don't know what I'm doing. And then afterwards, I felt really high energy. And then that energy just carried me through the rest of the week. I definitely feel like really grateful both to you and to, to Tommy for being these people that can act as these kind of like human emotional trampolines where I am clearly on the way down and then I slam into you and then you propel me on the way back up. And then it helps me jump into the next couple of days with a lot more energy. Like it's... My Kennedy teacher is actually a very perceptive person. So as soon as I logged on for the call the next day, she's like, oh, you're like really excited today. And I'm like, how? You've seen me for one second. But it was cool just seeing how immediately apparent that was to her. But yeah, I do think that you're right, that a lot of the pain here is self-inflicted in the sense that it comes from these expectations. And it comes from this frustration around not being good at something that I've invested a lot of time into. For some things... I am bad at them and I just accept that I'm bad at them. I don't feel particular shame around it. Sometimes it's inconvenient. For instance, my sense of direction is god awful, but I've just accepted that that is just the state of my mind because I've never experienced being good at that. Whereas it's the things where I've experienced being good at it and then subsequently experienced being very bad at it. Those are the most painful ones. And I think it, it does come from the increase in expectation that comes from a certain amount of time and energy investment. So I think that's like dead on. Yeah. Um, First of all, the trampoline imagery is very heartwarming. Oh, I think yeah. It's very, very awesome. Human That's emotional great. trampoline, yeah. That's great. I love that so much. <laughs> to what degree do you think those expectations are good or bad? Because we're noticing that these expectations are what give rise to these thoughts of, I expected myself to be better now that I've spent 500 hours on this thing. But I'm curious the degree to which you feel like those expectations have a positive side to them as well, or do you think they're strictly bad and we should not have expectations in that way? Um, this is a hard question. The first thing that comes to mind is, I remember talking to one of our mutual friends years ago, David, when he was very early on in meditation path, describing this analogy of riding a horse, where some of us think that by beating ourselves up, that is the only way to keep moving forward. And the analogy is of riding a horse, the only way to get the horse to go is to dig in your spurs. But the reality is most of the time, the horse just wants to run anyway. So it can be easy to consider negative reinforcement as your only motivation when that's frequently just objectively a lie. So while I think that having expectations for yourself in terms of effort is really valuable, like an expectation that you should show up even if it's hard, I think that the problem comes from having expectations of performance. You should hold yourself accountable to show up to the things you said you're going to show up for and to do the preparation work you said you were going to do. But having expectations for the performance itself is not very helpful because once you're in the point of performance, it's too late. You're not really in the practice training grounds at that point. So I think frequently at that point, it just serves to inflict pain rather than disperse growth. But yeah, and that's, I think that's my perspective. But how do you think about this as the resident shonen hero protagonist that learns via pain predominantly? 
broadly, I agree with you. It sounds like what you're saying is take responsibility slash have expectations for the part of the equation that you can control, right? which is showing up how much effort you're putting in. And ideally you don't feel the same way about the things that you can't control, which is yeah. specific outcomes. Yeah. At a specific time, which makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And like for some of these things, trying to draw this dichotomy between things that you can control and things you can't is easy. Being stressed out because on the day of some event you planned, it rained and it was not originally predicted to rain clearly outside of your control. When you see that it's raining, putting on a jacket clearly in your control. But the really challenging stuff I find is personally the stuff where it's your own emotional reactions to things. You can't control whether it rains. You can control whether or not you bring a jacket. The question is, to what extent can you control your ability to enjoy the event, even though it's raining? And that is typically the thing that I struggle with the most, where it's unclear. It's like shades of gray how much you can control your reaction in that situation. Yeah. I'm curious to hear more about how you think that expectations have aided you or led you astray from your own growth journeys, just so we can have some points of comparison here. Yeah, I just want to call it that it does generate some energy when you get frustrated at yourself. You're yeah. like, I've been working so hard on this thing. How am I still so terrible at it? That can be used as fuel, yeah. which in the past, I definitely have. Yep. In fact, I add to it by putting myself in situations where it is painfully obvious, not just like <laughs> the gap between my own perception of where I am versus my own expectations. I put myself in environments where I'm clearly also way worse than everybody else. So it's yep. within myself and compared to other people, huge gap. And I've historically used that as a, like a dark trampoline <laughs> to try and bounce myself. <laughs> oh you know? I am thoroughly enjoying the variations on the trampoline imagery. Dark it's trampoline. Good, right? Oh my God. Yeah. It's a, it's a trampoline fueled with dark stick energy. This sounds like the, like some kind of like attack, like Hasoka from Hunter x Hunter would have a dark trampoline. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What's the phrase that he always says? Like bungee gum possesses both the properties of gum and rubber or something like that. <laughs> yeah. It's a meme. So yeah. anyway, shout out to anyone who recognizes that meme. The problem of this path is it eventually leads you to burnout. Yep. Eventually one of two things happens either it works out and then the dark energy can be released and then I'm less frustrated with myself and there's yeah. like a release of it. The unhappy path is if I don't get to that point, then all of this twisted energy just exists there and continually reminds me that I am terrible at this thing that I want to be good at. And the result of that for me is some form of mild depression, basically. Yeah. Where I'm like, oh, I feel stuck. I can't do anything about it. And then I either get really sad or if it festers even longer, it develops into a superiority complex because you can't exist in a state of your brain constantly telling you suck for an extended period of time. Either you have oh, to yeah. rectify it or your body mind has other coping mechanisms that are less healthy. Yeah. Yeah. It's like fueling your life off of dark energy and then allowing that to just inhabit your body indefinitely sounds like not a fun time. That I, yeah, I think that yeah. you should leap off that dark trampoline, not just chill out there for a bouncy castle fun day. Yeah, exactly. I think it, it's actually the dark connotation is pretty good. It's like it's used with caution kind yeah. of thing, right? Like it has worked for me in the past, but I think, you know, 80% of the time you're way better served by not having those strong expectations and instead leaning into the whole, this is fallen from last episode yeah. of just trying to enjoy the process yeah. rather than obsessing over the destination. What was the last time you remember this dark energy inhabiting you and driving you forward? The most recent example of this is at work, actually, where I was frustrated with my own rate of progression in my own role. My response to this was I'm going to take on even more responsibility yeah. and even more scope and even more visibility as forcing functions to push me even yeah. more to just have to figure it out. Yeah. Again, more callbacks to the last episode. It's I'm now thinking whether or not that's just me being lazy because I'm essentially saying that instead of spending time thinking about a specific path forward and this is how I'm going to be better and to be intentional about it. I'm saying, I don't want to bother thinking about that. I'm just going to force myself to be in these life or death, basically, situations and force myself to figure it out. Okay. I think that 
describing that as lazy is incredibly uncharitable to yourself. Like it's, even if it might not be the most effective way, even if there was more thoughtful ways about going, the reason you were doing that was clearly not driven by laziness, or at least not by what anyone would normally think of as the conventional definition of that word. The phrase, I'm going to do the lazy thing and take out as much challenge as I can doesn't make any sense. And that sounds like roughly what you were saying. What, I think that what you're trying to express, though, is that you were, you were potentially trying to take the, like, maybe you could argue it was intellectually lazy, which is a slightly different kind of laziness, whereas maybe you're hoping to develop a more critical thinking way of charting your growth and charting your accountability structures rather than just adding more fear of failure. Is that right? It sounds like you're trying to construct this environment where you would allow a larger scope of a fear of failure to propel you forward. You're right. I don't even give myself credit for it anymore. It's just fundamentally, the goal is to grow and be better. That's all that's implied. It doesn't, I don't view it as taking active energy. So Mm -hmm. I don't even know to give myself a nod to that. But in that, because of it, my struggle was getting to the point where I was frustrated. And that frustration comes from essentially not knowing where to go or how to approach the problem. Mm. Eventually you just get so frustrated. I just got so frustrated that I just told myself, I'm not going to think about this anymore. Let's just add the fire, more fuel, more dark energy, and we'll just let things sort themselves out. Maybe, hopefully. So I think about a physical analogy, you're on a path and there's a big wall in front of you and there's one form of challenge, which is figure out how to climb the wall. And there's another form of challenge, which is give me seven other paths I can run down simultaneously and so that I can basically ignore this wall and still feel like I'm making progress. Does that sound right? A little bit. When you describe this situation, it reminds me of a video game scenario. Yeah. And there's two approaches. One is, okay, I'm at this wall. I need to figure out where to go next. I could spend some time trying to map out the situation, like running around, finding out where the wall ends, trying to find the lay of the land, right? Yeah. So that you can determine the most optimal path, the smartest path forward. And then there's just running straight at the wall because I'm so frustrated and tired that I don't want to spend time figuring out what's going on. I'm just going to run straight at the wall until either I break through or it's like one of those 90s video games where you can just run straight and eventually you'll move up to (laughs) go over the wall (laughs) because of that glitch. Yeah, I'm like picturing like the running animation. And the running animation just continues, but the character goes vertically instead of horizontally. Yeah, yep, yep. exactly. Yeah. Like you see it as like something in the physics engines look glitchy. Yeah. There's like a little bit of vertical movement that eventually stacks up and your person can run into a wall and move up at the same time. I guess like, the, yeah. So the, in some ways that is that's one way of expressing the problem of the distinction between like effort laziness and intellectual laziness. Anyway, I just wanted to really reinforce that. I definitely never view you as a lazy person. It's good to hear that because I view myself as a lazy person all the time. Oh, man. No. Definitely. All the time. If I had to, like, do a word map of things I have associated with Kevin, lazy is just, it's not at all near the center at all. Like, it it would probably be in the bottom 5% of words I could think of. I appreciate that. Thank you. I feel very, well, I feel warm and fuzzy, but then immediately because I'm bad at taking compliments, it just goes away. (laughs) And I'm like, No. You're not allowed to feel this. You'll get complacent. <laughs> yeah. Man. Oh, man. I think I've told you this, but I love the fact that in, uh, in the Cantonese textbook that my teacher uses, there is literally a section with the heading, how to deflect compliments. Oh. Like, it's like part of the cultural education is explicitly, look, if you want to learn how to speak this language, you got to get real good at learning how to deflect compliments. Otherwise, it will be obvious that you're foreign, which I think is hilarious. Um, yeah, in a very bad way. <laughs> yeah. That's also a thing that I'm working on. I was saying before, one of the goals is to be able to feel and understand the feelings fully and then articulate them. Yeah. This is a great example of an emotion that I struggle with letting myself feel fully. Yeah. Ooh. Do you I think- don't even know really how to fix it. It's like one of those meditation things where you can't will yourself into a state of flow. You just have to let it go and then mm. let the flow find you. Okay. But when you receive a compliment, walk me through what is happening. What is the emotional reaction? Where is that happening? And then when you feel the resistance to it, is it that a thought occurs in your head? Is it a feeling in your body? What is going on step-by-step? Yeah. So when I get the compliments, well, one thing I've at least worked on now, because before I used to just deflect. Mm. Now I have this new, relatively, skill of being able to say thank you. Yes. That's new already. In my opinion, the best response to a compliment is you say thank you, and then you continue the conversation. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, yes. It's so shocking because some people who have this down pat and are able to just take in Kabbalah, they do it so naturally. But literally the cultural learning is you can't just own the Kabbalah. That's not okay. Yeah. And it, it's very jarring seeing and experiencing A, people do this and B, actually it feels fine. I think for me, it feels like there's a little stone wall around my heart, basically. <laughs> and it's like, concrete comes in and it's like, bounces off the walls. Yeah. Kind of thing. And then now, the latest learning is I get to pop up over the wall and say, thank you. I feel nothing. It feels rigid. Yeah. When someone gives me a compliment, I'm just robotically, oh, yes, thank you for the compliment. So, <laughs> oh my God, this whole conversation has so much good imagery. The trampolines, <laughs> the little stone wall garden of, around your heart, the little like miniature inside Kevin, like just peeking over the wall, being like, thank you. And then falling yes, back down. Exactly. Oh, it's so cute. Yeah. I love this whole imagery. That is exactly what it feels like. And then in the moments, sometimes friends will push me to feel it. Mm. The ones that know will really be like, did you feel that though? And I'll <laughs> yeah. be like, no. <laughs> and they'll be like, what would it look like if you did let yourself feel it? Yeah. And then whenever I do, I come close to breaking down. And yeah, yeah. it's just so intense. Even if it's like, never felt this before. It's starting to take away some of these rocks in the wall. Yeah. It's like holding back a dam. It's like rushes in and you're like, oh. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know how it got to this. It feels to receive slash not feel compliments, but that is what it's like. I'm now just curious intellectually whether or not that's related to the growth journey at all i guess part of the growth journey is recognizing that you are making progress right yeah so in a way this is i think this for me plays into it a bit as well is i never want to acknowledge that i'm making progress in a weird way mm -hmm. or at least not openly because mm -hmm. again i have this fear of oh it'll make me complacent and therefore get in the way of the most optimal growth trajectory because i'm now less hungry because i'm more happy that i'm yeah getting there i do think that this is part of why the variety of compliments that i typically appreciate the most are compliments about change in the communication course thing we've both gone through this is described as witnessing this is a, a form of affirmation or witnessing where it's not about oh man you're so good at this it's about, wow, you have gotten a lot better at this. And I think the reason that works for me is whenever I receive compliments in an absolute sense, my brain immediately goes into comparison mode with people that I know that are way better than me at that thing. It's true. And I find myself suspicious of certain motives or I find myself, like, like for instance, the, the easiest way that this comes up for me is when I get a compliment from someone in an absolute way, when I don't view that person as particularly knowledgeable, if I get a compliment from someone that never dances, like, oh, you're such a good dancer, it feels like a little bit good, but I'm also like, I think this is a lack of exposure more than anything else. You just don't know what good dancing is. Yeah. And then like when I, when, um, <laughs> oh man, yeah. When I have that thought, it, it feels doubly bad because now I both don't accept the compliment and I'm like, wow, I'm an elitist asshole. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> Which, wow, I'm judging them now. They're trying yeah, to compliment me. And I'm judging them now. This is, this is an yeah. excellent interaction. Good job, brain. But, but I think that's why the relative progress thing works really well. Because if someone has seen you evolve over time, it doesn't matter what, how experienced they are. People can tell someone improving at something independent of their, of, of their level. And then at that point, like when they say, you've gotten a lot better. My brain doesn't compare to other people as much because it, it is them making a specific statement about how I am compared to how I used to be. I guess if I am in a particularly salty mood, I might compare my progress against other people's. <laughs> oh yeah, like I got better, but this person got more better. <laughs> yeah. Does that work for you as well? Do you find yourself more easily able to accept compliments about your own progress rather than about your absolute level? I've related a lot to that where I've had definitely had similar thoughts of hmm. someone saying, you're so good at badminton. It's weird because I have a definition of what that means <laughs> in my yeah. mind that I know to be true. Right. And this is what I was hearing from your side as well. It's like yeah. distrust. Are you, is this person like lying to me? Is this even real? Because in your mind, you have it, your reality is different. You're like, yeah. I have seen what good looks like. In fact, I'm aiming to be good. And I know yeah. that I'm not there yet. Yeah. So why are you telling me that I'm good? Yeah. It's weird, right? 
So I definitely have felt that before too. Normally those situations, I just nod and I say, thank you. And in my mind, I'm like, but I'm not though. Yeah. There yet. And then I think the arc thing is cool. What you're saying about if you can take a relative scale, it means more because this person is witnessing your own growth relative to your prior self. Yeah. Which kind of, we haven't explicitly called it out yet, but seems to be an implicit part. The measuring your own growth relative to yourself is probably the most healthy approach. As oh, yeah. Absolutely. To trying to benchmark off other people. Yeah. So. That makes a lot of sense to me. It's a really cool thing, especially because another thing I thought of when you were saying that is when someone compliments your own arc and development, it's much less about tactically, oh, I see that you learn X, Y, and Z skill. It's more of, I see you working toward this. It's uh, more fundamental, right? It's with the character, it's about the effort that you're putting in. Yeah. That's what they're seeing, which is typically harder to see. And then I think talked about less because the... Yeah. Actually learning skill X, Y, and Z, those are things are the more obvious ones where before I didn't know how to shuffle. Now I know how to shuffle. Yeah. There you go. But the unseen is the work that people are putting in behind the scenes and the emotional energy even underneath that of just the physical effort. It's like you had the motivation to do this, the drive, the passion, and that's what got you to practice for like 50 hours. And now you can shuffle. Yeah. Okay. It's, yeah. This is really cool because it, it, it kind of clarifies to me that there's actually three separate things here. There's complimenting someone for their state you're good complimenting someone for their change you've gotten much better and then there's complimenting someone for their process and saying i see how hard you've been working and i guess for different people those three different things probably land quite differently so do you think that for you it's really the process bit that lands the best for you i guess one thing that's nice about that is it tends to be the hardest for you to refute if someone says like hey i see you putting work into this every week Exactly. That it's hard for you to be like, no, I wasn't here all the times you saw me here. That's like, yeah. 100%. I feel like it's fairly universal in terms of how impactful the compliment is, like in those three uh, stages that you talked about. And it, it maps to the irrefutability, but yeah. also the difficulty for it to be recognized and the scarcity that naturally results from that. Yeah. It's rare that people can actually see your journey. And if it, they're being genuine, then they have to be there to witness it in yeah. some way, shape or form. And then they also have to have the awareness to call it out. So that's rare. Yeah. I think that's all those things coalesce and result in, I think it's fairly universal that a compliment about your process and your art is going to hit harder, I think, than yeah. just like the tactical skills. All right. Yeah. Okay. But can I experiment here? Sure. Okay. So oh, no. And you're like, sure. And you're like, wait. <laughs> the wolves are like, immediately, oh no, incoming assault. So if I said, hey, Kevin, you're really good at speaking fluidly in your recordings now. That's like option one. If I say, hey, Kevin, I see you've gotten a lot better at speaking fluidly in your recordings. Like I remember at the very beginning, you would have a jump cut every three words. And now it's closer to every couple of sentences. And then the last option here would be, hey, Kevin, man, I have so much respect for how much time and effort you have put into working on this and making video after video, even though your audience is not massive yet. And you just recognize the difficulty of the process, but keep investing. Like for each of those, how would that land for you? Or how, or how did that land for you? That's funny. I think in increasing order, there is more intensity for sure. I would say the mm. first one was like a six out of 10 in terms of intensity and then like gradually ramped up. You're talking about me making YouTube videos, right? Yeah. In my process. Yeah. It's funny because for that in particular, I have not been very good about <laughs> staying consistent. I haven't posted a video in four months. Yeah. So it's funny that for me, it was like, oh yeah, so nice, so nice. And then immediately I remembered, oh wait, but I haven't done this in a long time. Yeah. All of a sudden that kind of gets in the way of me fully appreciating that as well. Because in my mind, I'm like, oh, what videos? Oh, what audience? Oh, all these kind yeah. of intrusive thoughts come in. Independently of that, though, I think it is a nice progression, like six, seven, eight, in terms of in increasing intensity. The last one, I'm guessing, it didn't land super well because it recently has not been as objectively true. Like your energy isn't put into other exactly. things. Exactly. So yeah. it, it was too easy to refute. Each of these have their own mechanism of refutation. The first one is, I have a different reality for what good means. I I know what like the real badminton stars look like. I know what the real vloggers are like. The second one, you can still similarly either say. 
I know people that have gotten much better, much faster, or actually I don't think I've improved that much. And then the last one, it's refuted if it's literally not true. And in this case, at least for the last couple of months, it has been literally not true, which is interesting. So I guess that in each step in this process, you, it's harder to refute, but you also as a person need to have a much deeper connection to the person. Because the reason I know that you spend time doing these things is because I've seen you do it over long spans of time. Whereas if I dropped in at a specific point, I couldn't really say that. If I watched one of your videos, there's no possible way for me to give the kind of category two or three compliments here. There's only one at my disposal, which is maybe also part of why they land better because it implies a certain kind of like connection and that person's investment in your growth and in, in getting to know you that, that the first one does not. Yeah, I think for recognition of progress, it has to be all parties have to view it as true. That's fundamental. And part of it is the category two and three compliments are literally harder to give. It takes more effort on the other person's part. Yeah. This, this whole topic makes me wonder a little bit about in the journey of progressing growth in anything, what do you think that the, the important roles that other people play in your growth are? Like some of them are pretty obvious. Like this person is the coach, the person that is literally teaching me the skill. But I think there's a lot of other facilitating roles. What are the roles that other people have played in your life at different points that have been really important for your growth? I think the one that stands out the most is someone to share the journey with. One kind of underlying theme from what we've been talking about is growth is not linear up into the right mm -hmm. kind of path. It's more or less like a sinusoid that roughly you hope trends in the positive yeah. direction, but there's ups and downs all the time. Yeah. And it's easy when you're deep in working on whatever it is you're working on to get stuck in one of those local maximums and think that, oh, I'm doing so terribly. Why am I doing so terribly? It's really helpful in those moments if you could take a step back and then look at the overall graph essentially and not just focus it on like the last three yeah. data points, so to speak. And I think having other people with you on that journey is really grounding and really helpful that way, because in theory, they're going through similar struggles. They understand the domain expertise and they've seen you jump through several hoops and climb several Everests to get to where you are today. Yeah. I think that has been a huge benefit whenever it's available. And once you're outside of school, it's increasingly rare to find people who are in the exact same situation as you learning the exact same things. So that's definitely something I've come to appreciate more now. Yeah. One way of phrasing this is peers. And I think that having a group of people has been helpful to me, but I think that the thing that's been even more helpful, which is maybe more specifically what you're alluding to is having a, almost like a rival, ideally like a friend rival, a friend of me, not exactly a friend of me. Cause like I'm not half friend, half enemy, but it's like, I'm half friend, half rival mm, with them. Rival. A half rival. Yeah. Half rival. Yeah. <laughs> I can think of a few of the people that at different points have been my, I really like this word now, frival. I can think of a few people at different points that have been my frivals in, in the word is so ridiculous that have been my, my rivals in different contexts. But I want to know more about yours to understand like what your emotional connection to them is and, and, and how you think that they help propel you forward over the years. Yeah, definitely. I've had several throughout the years. I think it's something special to know that they're that you respect for being on a similar level to you. And because of that, you take their expectations of you seriously. And it sets up this potential resonance effect, which potentially is very powerful. Part of the mutual respect and recognition that this person is a rival is that their growth trajectory yeah. is similar to yours. Yeah. I think that is very motivating because you're essentially each always within each other's 50% stretch zone. Uh, and watching the other person go take that extra step, you're like, I can do that too. And then the other mechanism is a more course correcting one whereby your rival comes up to you and is like, come on, what was that? Yeah. I agree with everything you're saying in the abstract, but I think that for this kind of thing, digging into specific examples is where it can be a, a better grounds for identifying insights. So who has been an actual rival to you and in what domain in your life and how did they help you along your path? I think, okay, a good tactical example of this is in high school. One of the subjects I was pretty good at was English. There were maybe at, at any given point in time, two or three contenders for like the highest English mark award at the yeah. whole school. And yeah, there was one person in particular where we were just like battling it out every year for this award. And it was cool to know that for any, any given assignment or any opportunity to get a grade, essentially to get closer to that order, there was someone hot on my heels and constantly pushing. And it's cool because with English in particular, 
there's this culture of sharing good work mm -hmm. within the class. So very frequently that like either my stuff would get cited and the, like a, a teacher would share it with the rest of the class or her stuff would get picked and shared with the class. And so there was this competitiveness of getting increasingly better grades, but there's also been an opportunity to learn from how we were approaching the same problem in different ways and calibrate yourself a little better. And that kind of like back and forth just increased and intensified over time. So it sounds like there, there was an important element here of competition and recognizing that if you start slacking, there's someone else hot on your heels for grades. But then there was also this piece of mutual appreciation. What was your relationship with this person? Were you like really tight friends? Were you just coexisting people in this academic environment? Or what were the interactions just between the two of you outside of the classroom context? Yeah, I guess you could say it was like a frival kind of thing. Okay. And most things are definitely, I would say definitely we were friends. Yeah. This is just one point of, and we would snark each other about it too, right? Yeah. A little bit. There was like a little bit of banter there as well. Yeah. Definitely some moments of, I don't think it was ever intent as well as that, but definitely, oh, what did you get on this thing? Oh, I got this mark. What about you? Like that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, We're, yeah, mostly that can get toxic, but for us, it was mostly predicated on a sense of respect and also friendship. So that was good. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the, that kind of snark can feel really valuable when you also have the same, when you have the friendship dynamic, because you can feel the care behind the criticism or behind the, uh, yeah, that's, yeah. Big. If anyone's ever like, Hey, what was that? That it's coming from a place of like actually caring about you, not just wanting to poke fun at you, not just trying to elevate their own status over you. Interesting. What's your example for this? I have a lot. I think, so I'll talk about the different rivals I've had in different contexts. And then I also want to talk about a couple other really important roles that people have played my growth at different points. The two clearest domains for me have been software engineering and badminton. For software, more narrowly, because it was just an easier way of doing more direct competition, it was competitive programming competitions. So in, also, I guess I'll start with badminton. I had one friend through all of high school that was most frequently my doubles partner. And it was very clear that we were getting better together and that in the process of doing that, we were building a friendship and learning how to push each other and learning to build this kind of connection between us. And we would go train together there would be days where I would be just completely choking and he would be like, hey, like, what is going on? And I think it really was the intertwining of the relationship building with the skill building that made both the relationship deeper and the skill building more meaningful. So some of that was just like playing recreational games together. Some of that was playing against each other. Some of that was playing tournaments together and then repeatedly reflecting on what went wrong and making it really clear that we were there to support each other. Like we never threw each other under the bus. It was very clear that we here, here and we win together, we lose together. And some of that was not only about learning how to correct and cover for each other, but learning how to like emotionally support. I'm sure, I'm sure you experienced this too in, in playing in, in high school in, in Ontario, but at tournaments, there is a shockingly large element that is just about morale gain. When on every point you win, you shout and you hype each other up. And if you ever see your teammate choke, you eventually figure out what works for you to get them to not get overly obsessive about mistakes and to just move forward. So that was one dynamic that worked really well. And then for, for programming competitions, I had one person in high school and then I had another person in college and in college, it was just the first year. So the first year it was David, who was a mutual friend of ours where we were on the same, we were on Waterloo's C team because Waterloo was so stacked that we both barely made the cut for the C team. And it was similarly that we would frequently come to each other with new challenges and then ask them, how would you solve this? And something about the other person bringing the challenge to us made it a lot more emotionally compelling than if I had just read it somewhere. And we definitely did. We trained a lot together and that really helped motivate me forward. And I did feel this strong desire to not fall behind in each of these cases because I had a clear marker of what I could be because I was seeing someone that was at my level that was progressing. So I knew it was possible because it was literally in front of me all the time. And I think that you're right that it is much harder to find these roles later in life, because it's just harder to find people that are on the same trajectory as you. Though I did have similar kinds of experiences with one of my peers at, at Figma, where I think that in the process of, of demoing things, we would low key be trying to outdo each other and how cool our demos were. But it was a very healthy kind of relationship where it was obviously really deep mutual respect. So yeah, I think that role is really important. And now that I think about this, there's many facets of my life where I don't really have this. And I wonder what it would look like to have it. Like I have no Cantonese learning frival. There's no one that I know that is in a similar kind of growth trajectory as me. Maybe I'll find one when I go to Hong Kong. I guess we'll see. Yeah. yeah. 
For sure. I'm actually curious because when you were asking the question, I thought about it and I didn't come up with any other rules, but it sounds like you think you have quite a few that you think are important as well. So I'm curious yeah, to learn about that. For sure. One of them, which I think I didn't really have or think about at all up until really the last couple of years is just the people in your life that will just tell you, hey, you're doing fine. <laughs> and you don't really need those people to understand what you're doing at all. Just be able to listen to you and then say like, it's okay. Like you, you can just, you're working on this. It's hard keep going. If you completely choke at this, we're still friends. Everything is fine. So just having friends that are there as emotional supports, I think is helpful. That's kind of one rule that I might call like the supporter. I think there's also some amount of being a cheerleader, showing up to people to watch people's games, even in a sport you don't play or asking them about how a presentation went, even if it's in a domain you don't understand that kind of thing. And I think that is really important because it, it, it helps feel like the things you're doing matter to someone. That's one role. Two other roles which I think also have contributed a lot to my growth at different points are mentors and mentees. And I've seen interesting distinction drawn in the past between a mentor and a coach. And I do think there's an important distinction. So for me, mentors are the people that I'm trying to emulate. So typically, I don't really view them as my direct peer. I view them as unmistakably better than me at the thing. And I'm trying to learn predominantly through testing myself against them or by emulating them. I've had this really strongly in software engineering. I've had a few mentors that were just like a few major steps past where I was. And I'm really glad that I was able to view that as room for growth rather than as a hopeless insurmountable obstacle so that I might as well give up. So there's the mentor role. And some of that is also just showing you what's possible. Actually, in anything I've done, whether it be dance or cooking or writing, Sometimes one of the best accelerators is just being shown how good it is possible to be. Because sometimes it's easy to get stuck in ruts where you're doing these small incremental improvements and then someone just does something that it's not an incremental improvement over what you're doing. It's a fundamentally different thing. And you realize that your bar has been set too low in a way that does not serve you. So mentors, I think, do that for me. The reason that mentees have been really helpful for me is I think that mentees typically are one of the best possible things that you can find to help you understand that you have indeed made progress. Because it's really easy when you're on your growth trajectory to be constantly comparing yourself to people that are far past you. And it can sometimes feel like that gap is never closing and therefore it feels like you're standing still. But when you have a mentee and the mentee is asking you questions or asking you to teach them in some capacity, you start to recognize in the course of explaining things, oh, the things I'm explaining right now, I did not know a year ago, or I wasn't able to do a year ago. Whereas it's easy to lose that when you're only interacting with a mentor because the mentor is already able to do all those things. So they're very rarely going to ask you to do those things. And then I guess the last role is the role of a coach where they're not necessarily teaching you how to do the thing, but they're helping you figure out how to build the right structures to do it. So that could be finding you a mentor. It could be finding you a mentee. It could be Asking what things in your life are preventing you from pursuing what you want to pursue. Helping you identify the things that you're doing that you actually don't need to be doing. So more tactically helping you plan your growth trajectory rather than being the one that is actually implementing the growth plan. So is one key distinction then between a coach and a mentor is sounds like the coach helps you focus on the meta. Yeah, exactly. Which can be domain independent. Where it would be cool if they had domain expertise, but if they don't, it's also fine. Yeah. And mostly you're looking for that domain expertise from the mentor who is the person you are trying to emulate. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I think part of why this distinction is helpful, sometimes people are extremely good at things, but they don't know why they're good at those things because they've never mm -hmm. had to decompose what process they personally took to get there. Good coaches will have already guided dozens and dozens of people through the path. So they have visibility of what that path looks like over a much more diverse set of people. Whereas mentors are people who are very skilled at a thing, but have never coached, might only have perception into their own path. That makes a ton of sense. Another badminton analogy, one of my coaches yeah. always used to say that learning from the best players sometimes is not what you want. Yeah. Because a lot of the times those natural geniuses don't really know either. They're like, oh, I just do this and it works. Yeah. And then everyone else is like, wait, what? How? Yeah. And they're like, oh, I just do this. It's easy. Exactly. Like, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, it turns out that knowing how to do something and knowing how you know how to do something are almost entirely separate tasks. And it can sometimes be yeah. more useful to learn from someone that is 60% as good as the best person, but four times as good as explaining how they do it. Yeah, for sure. My coach's proxy for this is look for the players that are pretty good, the like slow rates of improvement. <laughs> yeah. Or 
almost look for the people who are like mediocre because chances are they probably had to struggle. And in that sense, the more you struggle, the more you've had to spend time thinking about the thing, which increases the probability that you have a much more holistic and deep understanding of the thing. Ergo, they'll be a better teacher. Exactly. Exactly. If things come naturally to you, it can be hard to explain to other people how to do them. Whereas, or even if it's just been a long time since they've had to do it. The other benefits that coach has is they typically have watched people at many different phases of development and usually fairly recently. Whereas if you have someone that's just been doing training, but no coaching in badminton, for instance, if they're like an Olympic level player, they probably literally do not remember what it feels like to not be able to serve properly. Whereas right. like someone who just started training a year ago, they will viscerally remember what it feels like to be bad. That's true. There's a term for this. I don't know. Noob empathy. Yeah. You forget the struggles, all the small little insecurities, all the small little questions, because now it's getting close to being second nature. So you just like, yeah, Yeah. just do it. And that's interesting. Any other major struggles through the growth process that you've had intend lately? I think for any kind of growth, there's always some amount of existential dread where you're like, wait, why am I doing this again? And occasionally it's not fun in the moment. It can be difficult to remember why you're doing it. So I personally find writing down explicitly why you're doing the thing is helpful. I think we've also talked about, about like some of the perceptions that you've gotten from Jordan Peterson, where it's not just about what does it look like to succeed, but you have to look at what does it look like to be 10 years out and to have failed to do this thing. And that can be very motivating its own. But that's the thing that, that, that occurs to me is just maintaining that kind of motivation when sometimes the reasons you seek it have changed or have gotten blurry or you're just really exhausted. Yeah. It makes me think back to some shonen animes where they emphasize and value the quote-unquote strength of your resolve very much. It was always interesting to me growing up watching some of these shows, the degree to which it's stressed. It's incredibly important. Like your why is incredibly important. And a lot of the times when people would not meet the standard by some mentor figure's estimation, approximation, they would always say that your resolve is weak. This is just a, this is an indication that you don't want this badly enough. You don't actually want this. You don't really care. And it's a nitpick slash attack really on, on the person's resolve. So it's interesting that maybe not the same level of intensity, but there is value in very concretely defining and reminding yourself, why am I playing this game yeah. to begin with? Yeah. Do you think that we could choose an anime and then try to break down what these different relationships look like in the context of one of those animes? That could be a cool series idea. Yeah. We can go third person and character A said this to character B. What did you hear when character A said that to character B? Yeah. What was the impact that had on you? Yeah. That can be fun. Like analyzing the individual interactions can be interesting, but I was thinking more generally just if you think about Haikyuu, what are the coach dynamics? What are the mentor dynamics? What are the rival dynamics? Because I think that that they're all actually present. Oh yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, these shows are always so archetypical. That's what makes them so great. Yeah. They're just, all the elements are there. And Haikyuu in particular, I think, is a good, really popular and well-appreciated, almost universally anime, because yeah. I think it nails all of the different character aspects in the model you were describing before. Yeah. And also a lot of the interactions that these different characters have with each other. Yeah. So yeah, that could be fun in particular. Are there any growth paths you're on right now that in the course of this conversation, you notice yourself like being like, man, I really wish I had this role to support me in this domain. I've always been incredibly hyper-focused on the coach and the mentor. Mm. It's interesting that you brought up all the other roles that I hadn't really thought about in a while. Mentee in particular is interesting. They, yeah. they say that like the ability to teach something is an indicator that like 90% of it, right? Or like the true mark of mastery is the ability yeah. to teach it. I don't know that I have mentees directly in my life. YouTube is a forcing function for this, where I put Mm. myself in a situation where I have to articulate how to do parts of my job, Yeah, which has been interesting. So that could be potentially interesting as well in terms of, because I'm sure I also suffer from, what did you call it? Noob empathy, a lack of noob empathy Yeah, as well. So that could actually be very interesting to Mm. chat with more mentees. It also probably will put me more in touch with what people's struggles are at and ergo how I can help them more. Yeah. That could be cool. Groundedness. Yeah. I think I mostly will get that from friends. But maybe when I met up 
observation is I tend to not want to share things outside of do specific domain expertise. So for example, if you don't play Mahjong, I've never historically told people about my like Mahjong training journey. Right. Or if they don't play badminton, I don't really talk to them about, oh, this is how I've been progressing in this yeah. sport lately. Those kinds of things. But maybe from what I'm hearing, because you mentioned in particular that you find it helpful, even if the person doesn't really have context on the domain, to just tell them about your journey and have them kind of witness that for you. Yeah. And I find that valuable because even though they might not have the domain context, everyone has the experience of failure, disappointment, frustration, mm -hmm. embarrassment. So when I talk about the most struggles in those things to people that don't have that context, I'll just say, I have spent like 50 hours in the last few months trying to work on this thing and it completely failed. And it almost doesn't matter what the thing is because that's like a pretty relatable experience for a lot of people. Or similarly, I had spent a hundred hours on this thing and I just launched it and super happy. It went really well. Everyone really liked it. And then people just like having your friends be like, yeah, like I know that you've been working on that really hard. I'm really happy for you that that worked out. And even if they don't understand exactly what's going on, having people sharing your joy, I think is really valuable. So yeah, cheerleaders are just good. Having cheerleaders in your life that can support in the ups and the downs, independent of their domain knowledge, I think has value. Huge. Yeah. Really into that more. I feel like I don't share as much as I could there for my own benefit, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th I think that, do you think that we are rivals on the learning communication skills front? I think it's possible. I think you're a little further ahead of me, but I think the set of people that could be pretty much, I think is, I only know you, <laughs> that's working on it in the same intentional way, using the same common frameworks and language and principles. So yeah, beyond this podcast, which is our uh, point of interaction, it's unclear how progress could be tracked mm, and compared. Yeah. We don't, we'd have to see each other. Yeah. I guess you just have to keep going and then become a facilitator and then we can facilitate together and then, and then, then we'll see it. That's hilarious. I think what's, if and when I get there, it'll be, there'll be multiple dimensions for this. It's, yeah. Cause there's even interactions, it's how good of a listener are you? And then how good of a storyteller are you? And then there's going to be this now new one of, okay, how good of a facilitator are you? Yeah. 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 Totally. It's uh, true. What were you going to say earlier? I don't remember. No. Completely got, <laughs> it's completely exited my brain. No. These moments are painful, man. Yeah. But yeah, this conversation has been interesting because I am much more intensely aware now of the holes in my support networks for different things. Like for, for Cantonese learning, for instance, I have a great mentor. I guess like my teacher is a mentor and a coach, which I guess is what a teacher typically is. And then I have some amount of cheerleaders or like tier two mentors where I just will talk to them, practice them occasionally. I definitely don't have any mentee and that one feels very strange that I would have that at this point. I just feel way too noob to be useful on that front. Although I guess the thing that I can do on the mentee front is if someone wants to start language learning broadly, I have strong opinions about what things work and what things don't know. And I actually do think that there is a potential value in me trying to find a coach where they're not teaching me Cantonese, they're leveling up the meta of language learning and trying to clarify my theory of language learning and trying to encourage me to go do specific things to engage in the language learning process. And then the other domain that I've been pushing on recently is fitness. And I have like some amount of rivals there and that a lot of our friends similarly have been working on their bodies and working on lifting heavier weights, but I don't really have a coach or a mentor for that right now. And those are things that could be easy to fill out as well. So yeah, I think they're trying to find that after I move could be really valuable. Yeah. All right. I feel like the conversation has satisfied itself at this point, or is there more that you wanted to say? No, I think similar vibes. Yeah. Do we want to take stock of any other core interesting takeaways for you? And then we'd love to talk about our practices. Yeah. I think systematizing the different levels of compliments and the ways in which you might provide that is really interesting to me. I'd already had thought about the, the distinction between complementing skill versus complementing progress, but I hadn't thought as much about the idea of complementing process and effort. Mm, so mm. that's helpful as an additional angle of things that I can, additional ways I can help support. So that was really directly questioning the idea of, is the pressure applied when you're in low states actually helpful or not? That one I think is an interesting question. I still don't know if I really have a conscious ability to decide in those moments that I want to apply less pressure to myself but it at least seems like a reasonable ideal to strive for. 
And then I think, yeah, the last part of the conversation, just digging through the different important supporting roles people can play. I think it was interesting to, to codify that as well. Yeah, what were your takeaways? Yeah, the only things I'm going to add is the more colorful metaphors. Oh, yeah. Trampoline, really good. Frival, really good. Yeah. Yeah. I guess my Stonewall thing is also okay. But no, that was great. I, know that I, I liked it. It was so I mean, cute. <laughs> but it's not a good thing. It's like, oh, no, that, <laughs> it's a good image for a bad thing. Right. But you're proud of the, the imagery, less proud of the necessity of the imagery. <laughs> yeah, like what it represents. It, it's a good way to communicate it. Not the most proud that's the situation, but yeah. Well, and the other caveat I had was in terms of what you were saying before, but can't really control how you feel about it in the moment mm. in terms of judging yourself. Mm. I agree. It's hard to be able to tell your brain, Hey, don't feel a certain way. That's yeah. never going to get you anywhere. Yeah. I think the thing that you might be able to lean into is preventing the quote unquote negative feedback loop from hell, which is yeah. when you or judging yourself, do not judge yourself for judging yourself. Yeah. Because <laughs> that is, that's what starts the you're right, you're right, good you're right. just recurse on itself until boom, you're that's like, the spiral. Whoa. Exactly. So I think yeah. that can be something to aim for, even though you can't control the initial dot for sure. Dots, they just happen sometimes. Yeah, totally. All right. Shall we do the retrospective on how we thought application of skills went? Yeah, for sure. I think for me, I can go first. Honestly, I was very tired. On the emotional sharing part, I again tried to dig deeper, but it, it's increasingly clear to me that it's going to be a long journey. I tried today and it came out as these metaphors, which was cool. It feels like a half step, not like a full step towards increasing the resolution of my yeah. understanding and my ability to communicate it. But it's cool as a technique. I've observed you and other people use colorful metaphors to communicate yeah. these kinds of things. It's almost like a short circuit where if you can find a good metaphor, you don't actually have to decompose everything and describe it. If you can use a metaphor to do that, that potentially is good as well. So that's why I think it's a half step. Obviously, the in my mind, the more intentional you can be about it and the more you can actually break it down is better question mark but anyway that's my old thoughts yeah i definitely noticed your emotional expression right out of the gate was like way more intentional than usual like the in responding to my initial story about going through really intense social anxiety the your response was very emotionally laden in a way that felt very real to me and complex which was interesting it wasn't like when i heard that i felt sad for you it was much more nuanced than that feeling the warmth around the availability to help me out both from you and from tommy there was more of an I'm forgetting now, but there was, I remember you, you really laid out like the complexity of the emotion, which I thought was pretty cool. It definitely felt like it tapered off the, as we got further and honestly, probably as we both got more tired as well. And I also noticed that for me, it did taper off as well. I think some of it comes from when I get eventually really comfortable in the conversation, I think less and less about the communication strategy and more about the content. But I do think that the way that you're using the emotional visual imagery worked really well. And I don't know if I agree that it's a half step because I think that in some ways emotions are not, words are labels for emotions and imagery is a different way of labeling that emotion. And to me, the idea of you being like a tiny version of you hanging out next to a heart that's surrounded by a giant stone wall and then like shyly peeking above the wall is in some ways a more nuanced way of labeling an emotion than any particular word would be. It's inconvenient in the sense that if you need to describe that emotion frequently, you don't want to have to describe the whole image every time. But I don't think it's an issue of inarticulation or lack of awareness. Yeah, I just wanted to give you props for digging into that and coming up with imagery that I think is both true and wonderful and much more memorable than any word you could have said. Thanks, man. Yeah. I myself. You could peek above the, above the wall being like, thanks, and then you can pop back yeah. in. Yeah, for me, I think that there were a few times where I was able to use more overtly emotional language, but it's still, it feels like 20% of where I want to get to. But some of the problem for me isn't even articulation. It's actually finding the opportunities to do it. Like, I, I still feel a little bit blind to the windows for it. And I think it might be that I'm just not sufficiently in my body to notice my changing emotional state. 
I think if you asked me at any given time, how do you feel about that right now? I could probably do it, but I don't feel the spikes in a way that prompts me to express it immediately. So I still don't know what to do about that exactly, but I think similar to you, yeah. I feel like I'm trending in the right direction, but it's going to be a long path. And all the interesting paths are long paths, so that's okay. I mean, one tangible thing is maybe for next time, one thing I could do is invite that more. The other thing is when I think about practicing disclosing emotion mm. and feeling, I totally agree with you that when I'm tired and have less cognitive energy available, the kind of side thoughts and processes of self-monitoring and trying to push into these uncomfortable, less natural areas of communication mm. goes away and you can fall back to what's comfortable and, and takes less energy. Yeah. Which is, I think for both of us, that like very logical side of the brain. For me, when I try to practice, I try to, in a given conversation, I have thoughts and feelings. Yeah. I, I intentionally silence the thoughts and I only think what are the feelings and I'm yeah. only going to disclose the feelings. Yeah, you're right. There's weird. There, yeah. I think that I don't do that. And I think that I could benefit from trying that and, and, and intentionally as I have the thoughts that are really excited to get out of my mouth, I can be like, hey, why don't you chill for a second? I'll get to you later. And then give my heart, which has a little slower to the uptake, a chance to wake up and say it's peace. So I like the idea of at least trying intentional suppression or intentional prioritization and just seeing how that plays out. So yeah, let's do that next time. Nice. Next episode is going to be strictly a feelings episode. There's going to be Oof. no logical flow. It's just going to be... I feel this. <laughs> you feel that. <laughs> yeah. Cool. What are what are your energy levels at now? Leaving the conversation. I think about the same actually. I think that I'm at like a six or a seven. Maybe six. I think I'm a little bit more tired now. I think that I am a little foggy, optimistic. I'm a little excited about the idea of more explicitly thinking through how to recruit an entire supporting team for different things I'm trying to learn. Mentor, coach, mentee, cheerleaders. Like the whole thing. Yeah. And that's sufficiently complex for today. Yeah. I'd say similar theme, probably chilling around solidly at three now. But yeah, I'm excited for the next episode. Just the feels. <laughs> Rest the talking with just feelings. I think it'll be a stretch, which also is exciting. Yeah. I think exciting my word. Yeah. A little drained. Definitely a little woozy. Brained. Whoa. Didn't realize we would be on today for so long on a Sunday while yeah. sleep deprived. <laughs> yeah. Still leaving happy though. All right cool. then. Until next time. Until next time, ladies and gents. Adios. If you enjoyed this conversation, please help us by leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app. We would really appreciate it because it helps us grow and lets others find the show. When we're not podcasting, Kevin also makes YouTube videos. And Jamie has a blog. You can find links to these in the episode description. The intro music you heard in this episode was made by Harry Dye. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks.